and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And we have a very special episode in store for you this week. What are we talking about this week, Bridget? Uh, I think we're talking about the Harvey Girls? No, that's not it. Beauty and the Beast? No, but we should do that at some point. <laughs> no, we should never do that. I know what we're talking about, TJ. Well, we are talking about the cinematic masterpiece known as the 1962 movie The Manchurian Candidate. We sure are. And it is one of my all-time favorite films. And I think it's just an absolute masterpiece. The good people at the American Film Institute would agree with you there. It's listed among the top 100 films of our all time. It is rightly so. It is a... Rightly right. so. So if you haven't seen the film, it is a truly remarkable piece of like political thriller with some very strong noir elements in which an American soldier is basically brainwashed to be an assassin. And... Meanwhile, his mother, who is Mrs. Island, played by our own dear Angela, is a cunning manipulator who is scheming with both her husband, a sort of buffoonish Joseph McCarthy stand-in, and with her son unbeknownst to him, to take over the government. So that's sort of the plot summary in short. And obviously, one of the most remarkable things about this film is Angela Lansbury's performance, even though she's only in the film for 12 scenes. So not very much compared to everyone else, certainly not the big stars, Sinatra, Janet Lee, and so forth, who are all above the title. She's you know, even above the title. She's just, she's after the title was announced. So it's really remarkable the extent to which subsequently she's come to be seen as one of the best things about this film. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, I, she's a tour de force. And I think we should start by talking about that performance. And we should say to people, you know, um, we both adore this movie, and it's a really dense movie. It's based on a novel. Um, There's lots of politics happening. There's subplots. There's probably lots of things that we won't get to in this episode because, obviously, we're a Murder, She Wrote podcast, and our focus is going to be on Angela Lansbury's performance, uh, which is stunning. So, Tej, to start us off. I want to talk about the choices that she makes as an actor to play Mrs. Iceland. So Mrs. Iceland, um, she said she drew on, Lansbury said this, that she drew on like meetings that she'd had with um, Washington, D.C. hostess wives and that kind of like rich facade that you have to maintain when you're, you know, a political lady. Um, So everything is like glossy and great on the surface, but her character is actually really super controlling and very tightly wound uh, while projecting this image of like, everything's great, everything's lovely, everything's put together. And I think she makes such interesting choices to convey that. Like her scenes are all very harried. Most of them, not all of them, are very harried. Like the first time we see her is when her son Raymond is arriving home on the plane and she's pushing through the press to get to to get to him as he's descending the steps so that she can orchestrate this photo op, right? And so there's pushing and shoving and the dialogue's all overlapping and she's just, she's chaotic but controlled in this way that I just find so remarkable. It tells us so much about this character, right? That she has like so much going on under the surface. Right. And it's also there in the way that she appears, like the way she dresses herself, the way that she quaffs her hair, like it's always into this very, how would you describe it? Like it's- I think it's a French- bun or a French roll is what they call it. Yeah, sort of swept up. And the way that, you know, she's always dressed immaculately. She has a real control of her own demeanor and her facial expression. 
and you know you spoke about her controlling nature and the scene right after she greets um her son on the tarmac they are in a limousine and she says to him like you and my husband are like my little boys and she like the way two little boys yeah i was just like wow if anything distills like the pathological momism of the post-war era like this idea that moms smother their children and turn them into emasculated men this is it like this is the character this is the moment that really brings that out well and not only her son but like Because that's a huge part of the movie, right? Ultimately leading to Raymond's demise and to her demise, too, is the fact that she sort of smothers him as a, you know, through momism, as you say. But it's, but the fact that she also does that to her own husband, right? And he, for much of the movie, is a complete clown. Like he's just a joke of a human being who did, and she even tells him at one point, What did I tell you? I told you, don't think. That's my job, right? Your job is to show up and say what I tell you to say. So she's clearly the political figure and he's just the figurehead. So he seems like this total buffoon that she just is absolutely pulling the strings on, um, which is so interesting because later at the end, when she confronts Raymond about the whole plot to have him assassinate um, the person running for president so that her husband can be the candidate, we learn that he actually knew about this too. So he's not as stupid as he seems, which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, he's a useful idiot. Like, he is kind of a buffoonish character, but not, as you say, quite as credulous as he might appear to be. And, you know, speaking of, like, that scene where she's like, I don't, you know, you're not supposed to think. There's this moment when, you know, she kind of lashes out at him and sort of makes sure she cows him. But then she returns to that placid, not not quite motherly, but nurturing demeanor, the, the kind outer appearance that she always sort of cultivates. Like, she's very skilled at, you know, changing her register, depending on what the needs of the moment might be. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to talk about her voice, which maybe is connected to what you're talking about. Like, there's something really remarkable about the way Lansbury uses her voice in this. It's very deep most of the time. She speaks very quickly and very deep, but somehow it's both deep and shrill. And I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. Uh, I guess I just don't know enough about like qualities mm-hmm. of voice to explain it better than that. But it's it's like both deep and shrill. Yeah, and I think that's a really excellent way of describing it. It's also very crisp. Like she has a like she almost bites her words off in many cases, particularly in the final monologue when she's explaining to Raymond like what this whole situation like giving the sort of explanation for us and the audience as well. And there's a real way in which she's, her delivery is very clipped and very controlled. And it's really symptomatic. I think not only of Angela's of Lansbury's performance, but also Mm -hmm. of the character herself, who is just someone who is absolutely committed to controlling every aspect of her life and everyone around her. You know, TJ, I think sometimes it's very easy to overlook acting, especially when a character is um, not, you know, like evil or a comedic character or something, when it's just like sort of a normal person going through normal routines and they're about the same age and gender and racial makeup as the actor, it can be very easy to forget that actors are making choices. And I think because the screenplay is so good and the material is so good and um, because Mrs. Iceland is such a rich character, like it's very easy to think about the choices that Lansbury made. And it really makes me appreciate her as an actor because the choices she makes here are so radically different from the choices that she makes in other material that it reminds you she is this incredibly talented actor. Like, we know that she got nominated for Oscars. She got nominated for an Emmy every year of Murder, She Wrote. 
I guess I don't always internalize it, especially when watching Murder, She Wrote, right? Because the focus isn't necessarily on acting choices. It's like going through the investigation or whatever. And so I, I love taking two hours to watch this movie and really thinking about what she does with her body and her hands and her facial expressions and her voice to give shape to a character. It just makes me appreciate like how truly talented she was. Right. And I think that's a really important thing to draw attention to, especially in a film like The Manchurian Candidate, which is A, very plot driven, because you have to really pay attention to what's happening, but also very stylistically distinct, because it's, as I alluded to at the beginning, there are elements of noir, it's very focused on like camera movement and cinematography and sound design. So it's really important, though, to pay attention to the way that her performance is a key part of the the, um, the sort of ethos and atmosphere of unease. Unease is a good way to describe it. Mm -hmm. Like it is, you know, in addition to being this perfect distillation of a political thriller, it's really a perfect distillation of like Cold War dread. Mm -hmm. And I think that because we don't know until the end just how corrupt Mrs. Eisland Mm -hmm. really is, like we know there's something wrong and we know that she's controlling and, you know, has this cold statuesque appearance, but we don't really realize the depth of her depravity until the Mm -hmm. very end. So I think that, you know, when we draw attention to her performance, I think that it helps to, like, draw out why for many critics, both at the time and certainly since, it's Angela Lansbury's performance that really elevates this film into the realm of the great, out of sort of its pulpy origin into something truly masterful. That's probably a good moment to segue into what this, um, this role in this film signified in Lansbury's wider career. Absolutely. So at this point, she's been doing Hollywood movies for 20 years. She's had a pretty storied career up until this point and was already nominated for two Oscars 20 years ago. And has been mostly sentenced to bit parts, like, you know, substantial, but still supporting characters. Like, that's what's so striking. I mean, even in this film, she's still a supporting character, but one of those supporting characters who is more interesting than any of the supposed main characters. And I put main characters in like heavy quote marks. Yeah, Frank Sinatra's character, Bennett Marco, is the good guy, the one who's investigating the mystery behind Raymond and his Medal of Honor and trying to figure out why everyone's having these weird nightmares about their time in Manchuria that don't make sense. And uh, ultimately, he's the one who figures out the plot. So he's sort of our hero, right? And it was Frank Sinatra's movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, he wanted to make it with director John Frankenheimer and helped push get it through. But um, I think in many ways, it's not his movie. Uh, It's really Lansbury's movie. It's not even Lawrence Harvey's movie. Lawrence Harvey plays Raymond, who I guess is the protagonist in many ways, because he's the one who gets brainwashed and he's the one who's going to commit assassination. Um, And at the last second decides he has power over that, that brainwashing and he kills his own mom and the senator instead, because he says no one was going to stop him. So he has this like amazing role too, right? And he's playing this guy who's just mentally destroyed at times. And other times he's a zombie um, because someone else is in control of his mind. And he makes such wonderful choices as an actor. Like I just, I totally respect his performance in this movie, but I don't think it's his movie either. I mean, I think it's her movie. When I was doing my research for this episode, I was looking at some of the more recent reviews because the the movie's 60th anniversary just passed last year. So there were a lot of retrospectives, Mm -hmm. particularly after Lansbury's death. And almost to every single one of them highlighted her performance as being the thing that sort of made this movie the great landmark that it is. 
Yeah. And I think for many people in Hollywood who had forgotten Lansbury's incredible start, you know, coming right out of the gate at 18 and getting nominated for two Oscars, uh, I think she, she, you know, then she kind of fell away from this idea of being a sensation, right? And and kind of, she wasn't forgotten. She was still in stuff, but she wasn't a household name. And I think this movie, unfortunately, didn't make her a household name at the moment because it got pulled so quickly after Kennedy's assassination. Right. But certainly in the test of time has really, I think, told the world what a tremendous actor she was. I think we can point to this. If we point to Murder, She Wrote as the thing that made her so beloved, right? And like, yes, Beauty and the Beast and other things came after, but it was because millions of people watched her on Murder, She Wrote week after week that we had this idea we loved her. And I think this movie we can point to as the one that says, oh, yeah, she's really talented. Right. And it's funny that you brought up Murder, She Wrote, because for people of our age and younger, our experience of Lansbury is dominated by both Murder, She Wrote, Beauty and the Beast, and, you know, her subsequent sort of old lady roles yeah the gentle old lady grandmother image right yep and so i remember watching a documentary it must have been on like biography or something about angela lansbury and seeing an excerpt of the manchurian candidate and being very like alienated by it because i'm just like how what this isn't the angela lansbury mm-hmm. that i know this isn't the this isn't the mrs eglantine price slash you know this lady like, doesn't Fletcher seem that nice I, I don't think i right. want a hug from her <laughs> But then when I watched this movie in grad school, um, I was just, I was blown away, of course, being older and more, you know, sophisticated as a viewer, and just being blown away by everything about her performance, you know, in the monologue when she's, you know, declaiming that, as she puts it, we'll have powers that will make anarchy, or martial law look like anarchy, <laughs> or the, you know, the look of terror on her face when Raymond shoots Island and she realizes she's next. Like, I was like, wow, this is extraordinary. And then when I, you know, I sort of have to hold these two images of Angela Lansbury in my head at the same time. Yeah. In a way that isn't true of people, maybe like my grandma, for example, who knew of her as an actress before, or, you know, who would have seen this movie when it first came out. People who would have seen it in real time and then seen her do Murder, She Wrote Later. Right, because the experience of her as a star changes depending on where you are temporarily. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that this and Murder, She Wrote are probably her two most dichotomous roles you know, just really diametrically opposed in terms of what she brings to the character. But I will say that um, Lansbury always speaks very lovingly of murder, she wrote, because I think she knew (laughs) where her bread was getting buttered. Um, But she she had reached a point, uh, there was a turning point around Mame when she like really wanted to do roles where people liked her. Because even starting with Gaslight, um, she was so often like, the person people didn't like, right? Mm-hmm. She was the bad lady or the evil lady or the old lady or the shrew. And that was most of her Hollywood career. And this movie was like, you know, epitomized that. Um, she describes Iceland as the crystallization of all evil. So, so you know, she wanted to have this turning point in her career later where she played stuff people liked because she felt like that those tended to be the stars that fans rooted for. Like you could be a really great actor, but if you're playing roles where everyone is supposed to hate you, they probably hate you, right? And if you play Jessica Fletcher or Mrs. Potts, people probably love you. And indeed, that's what happened, right? But when she talks about this movie, um, she talks about it in terms of what a gift it was to her as an actor. Um, she describes it as like the the sort of King Lear of women's roles, because women don't often have roles that are this powerful 
and this layered, you know, and just this tremendous, like written so well that like, yep, she's a mom and a wife. That is literally her narrative function. Um, but actually, she's the one who has all the power. So she always speaks of this role as just like what a gift it is to an actor to be able to play this. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up Lear because there's also very something um, Lady Macbeth about it, too. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there is mm-hmm. something very richly Shakespearean about this, this whole drama. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that helps to explain why it has such a strong posthumous reputation, because as you say, it's the screenplay that really helps to also ground Lansbury's performance. It gives her something to really sink her teeth into. Mm-hmm. And like... You know, I know that we're not supposed to cheer for her because she's obviously evil <laughs> and has brainwashed her own own son, although she didn't realize well, she that he was didn't going to do with brainwashing well, in say, her defense. She, someone else as did. She, I was gonna say in her defense, <laughs> she did not know it was going to be him, and she does sort of like, you know, say that she will get vengeance upon those who yeah. you know were so foolishly or what is she so contemptuously well, <clears throat> underestimated her. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear about that. She says she's gonna get revenge on them for brainwashing Raymond, but the bigger part of that sentence is where she's and for underestimating me, which I think is what she's actually more angry about, right? I mean, I think that what Lansbury gives us here is a villain that we actually could cheer for in a very strange way. I mean, I think queer people in particular are sort of adept at taking in sociopathic (laughs) characters just because, you know, we have so often been sidelined and jettisoned from culture. Like, it makes sense that we would find ourselves more drawn to these kinds of characters. At least that's why I've always found her to be the most fascinating person in this movie. And it's like, as I said, it's to Lansbury's credit that she was able to do so much with it. She described it as the most important piece of work that anyone had done, you know, in the cast, like including Sinatra, who's, you know, known for being a world-class singer. Like, no, this is more important. I think that's probably true. Yeah. It's not only just a great movie, it's also, like I said, it's just so symptomatic of a culture. Like, it's rare that you find a film that is able to be both of its time, but also in a subtle way, or in a way that isn't just hackneyed or trite. It's That's what makes The Manchurian Candidate so fascinating, I think. I just wonder how the hell it got made, honestly. I mean, this is... 1962. So at this point, yeah, the code is sort of eroding, the Hollywood production code, which um, the studio is all participated in by choice, governing what they would and wouldn't put on screen. It's starting to erode at this point, but it's still in force. And we have this movie that is so expressly political and um, engaging with these ideas of what it means to have communism infiltrate the United States. We've got people being brainwashed. Uh, we got a guy shoot his own wife, his newlywed wife, who's like this very pretty, innocent blonde lady. That seems like something Hollywood never would allow. He just shoots right. her in cold blood. We get other people shot in the head point blank. Um, and then old, and then we get the big moment, the one everyone wants to talk about, which is that Mrs. Iceland kisses Raymond on the lips. Now, in the, in the book, it's explicitly an incestuous relationship, which, of course, they didn't go there, couldn't go there in the movie. But she does kiss him on the lips, and she was instructed to put her hand over the mouth so we don't know quite the depth of the kiss, right? But this is right after she learns that he's the one who's been brainwashed to be the assassin. And she's, oh, Raymond, Raymond, I love you, you know, and she kisses him. How did this movie get made, DJ? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I think in part, you know, in addition to the code being lapsing, it's also the breakdown of the studio system and the rise of like freelance uh-huh. players 
So I think that that also gives directors and stars who, you know, as you said, Frank Sinatra is sort of the genius behind this movie, uh, getting it made and so forth, gives them a little bit more latitude to pursue these kinds of racy projects that are, as you say, so explicitly political and so explicitly engaged with the politics of the time. You know, because, you know, it's revealing that Iceland is Republican, like yeah. both him, you know, but him and his wife are, you know, they have all these memorabilia of Lincoln everywhere. Lincoln like, is in every scene that they're in. Yep. And so, yeah. you know, this and then obviously the climax takes place at the Republican National Republican Convention. Convention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's, and it feels in that regard very timely just because, you know, certain uh, traditions as far as politics go remain. And like, it doesn't feel that unusual to think about what this movie is doing in the present. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, I think, what struck me. Um, are we are we going there in this podcast? I, mean, I think we should gloss I mean, on it maybe can. just a little because people, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I think that's what struck me as well is that we live in this moment where um, I think we, we see within the Republican Party, you know, the certain far right extremist having these sort of dog whistles. You know, so so part of the movie is that Senator Iceland says there's 207 communists, there's 104. Then they finally settle at 57, which is totally a made up number because he happened to be holding a bottle of ketchup, um, you know, Heinz 57. And so and as Mrs. Iceland explains to him when he's like, can you just tell me a number like this is getting embarrassing. I'm always saying something different. She's like, no, no, no. That's the whole point. The whole point is they're not asking, are there communists in this in the Defense Department, they're asking how many, right? And so it becomes this like dog whistle of just decrying communism wherever, right? And I obviously that's referencing HUAC, that's referencing McCarthyism. But what strikes me is that I think we see a lot of that happening in contemporary politics. Um, it's also Pride Month. So I'm thinking of the way that anything remotely LGBTQ, right, is suddenly like, that's pedophilia. That's bad for children. We can't have that, right? That's trans. That's bad. Uh, without any like sort of scientific awareness or any, you know, it's just like, nope, that's, we're just gonna like, you know, that becomes this like uh, rallying cry shorthand that then we like sort of investigate these people and we're like, but the people themselves don't even actually believe this dogma, right? Yep. And I mean, that's the thing. I mean, say what you will about Mrs. Island, she's brilliant when it comes to politics and the way that politics and the like, oh, yeah. and the, the way that societies work. Like the, that scene where she's like, where well, they're not asking how many, they're just like, or they're asking how many. Po- they're asking how many, the, not are there. <laughs> right. So she's flipping through the newspapers. And I think that's a very deliberate choice as far as props go to show the extent to which Mrs. Island understands how media works in the modern age. Mm-hmm. And like, she also makes a point of instructing her husband to talk to the cameras mm-hmm. because of the fact that the hearings are being broadcast. So she has an understanding of how mass media works. Yes. Don't talk to the people at the hearing. Talk to the cameras. Right. She is basically the Steve Bannon of, you yeah. know, her, that of is, that movie, of this movie. Absolutely. I mean, that was another thing that struck me apart from like what the, what the doctrine is, was just the use of media in this. So I mentioned that all of her scenes, um, many of them, not all, many of them feel really frenetic and they take place in like this sort of media frenzy, right? So there's the photo op when Raymond arrives home. Then there's the the hearing at the Defense Department. Um, and I love the shooting of that because we see her in profile looking at the monitor while behind her, her husband is actually giving his spiel to the actual committee members. 
she's not watching him. She's watching how he looks on TV and she's not looking at us either, you know? And so I think there's just such a prescience of media in this and the way that media is manipulatable and people buy into it and it completely taints politics. And that was exactly what happened in 2016, right? It's exactly what happened with COVID. It's exactly what happened with critical race theory. And it's happening now. I mean, they've been explicit about the way that they are using trans people as a as a bludgeon with which to you know beat us all to death and i mean so that's why i think you know you know it's to miss to uh, lansbury's credit that you know she captures this woman who knows so well how to manipulate power and like understands the the mechanisms of power and how easily duped people are to believe things that's why she stage manages the convention because she gives raymond a very specific set of instructions in that monologue at the end she tells him the exact lines that he needs to pay attention to and he's gonna shoot he's supposed to shoot the candidate when he says i would give my life for liberty or i'd give my life for this government or whatever right so it's like i would give my life is the my cue. life before li- my life before my liberty yeah. that's the moment you kill him then and then then her husband, Johnny, will raise him up and step up to the mic and she will be fighting off people. It's like she has this real awareness of how, how appearances mm-hmm. make reality. Yeah. And that's part of why her monologue is so chilling. It's not just Lansbury's delivery. It's what it says about Mrs. Island as a character and how thoroughly and completely she understands the American population, which is really it's scary if you think about it. And also that, you know, it's still relevant and feels even more, in some ways, feels even more relevant in 2023 than it did in 1962. I mean, I think Senator Jordan is uh, their neighbor and also like their nemesis. And he, at one point, he says to her, you know, a lot of people think your husband is a buffoon and I don't. (laughs) I think he's actually really, really dangerous. And that really struck me too, Teach, because I think that's the moment we live in where we um, we like poke fun at certain politicians because they seem so ridiculous and over the top and they make gaffes all the time or they say contradictory things. And we're like, you don't even know what you believe. But like, actually, there's real danger in that, right? So that was also a very chilling moment for me. I was like, oh, that's exactly how things still are. Yep. Yep. And I mean, in that scene, it's very striking that she's in like, what, a little bow peep costume? She is, yeah, you like know, a shepherdess it's at the, costume. It's at, right, it's at the, uh, you know, the costume party that they're having at their, uh, you know, their house for the big wigs of the Republican Party. And it's so striking because even though she's dressed so ridiculously, she doesn't shed her menace, mm-hmm. especially in that conversation with the other senator where she's trying to cajole him and basically like, look, I know we don't get along, but our children are married. Like, let's make this work. Like, she's putting on this appearance Mm -hmm. of conviviality. But as soon as he reveals that, like, he's not buying it, the mask drops off and that's when she decides he has to die. She just literally, well, their kids aren't married yet, but she literally just, like, drops her shepherdess hook and, like, storms out out of the room. She is like, no, you know, that hosting facade is just, like, completely gone. Like, no, you pissed me off. I'm out of here. So good. There is nothing that about Angela Lansbury's performance in this that is not extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, and then she gets shot in the head and dies. Right, which that scene is terrifying. Like it it's is really not terrifying. just like like the scene the look of abject fear on her face, as I already mentioned earlier, is really another great Lansbury moment. But there's also the way that her body sort of flops limply after she's been shot, like is seared into my brain. Like mm-hmm. if there's one image that stands out to me in this movie. It's just how well it captures the like 
utter terrifying nature of like violent death without being gory or gruesome or mm-hmm. splattery. Like it's just so mm-hmm. well captures that. And I think that's part of also why it's so chilling. Like, you know, after she is shot by uh, Raymond, we see her sort of like her own yeah. son, like she just kind of goes limp. And it's just, I don't know. There's just something really disturbing about the way Lansbury uses her body in that whole scene. Like I said, it's just, it stays with me. The fact that he shoots her is kind of remarkable because we see him battling whether he can be, you know, deprogrammed. We don't use that language anymore, but, um, you know, that's the language at the time, right? Brainwashing and deprogramming. And we we think that he might have been able to, um, but then, nope, he isn't. Uh, he's actually, you know, arrives at the convention, follows through with the plan to shoot out a little peephole window um, into the crowd at at the candidate. And... At the last second, he is able to overcome it. And I think what's so remarkable is like the whole movie and everything you and I have said so far has been about how much power Mrs. Iceland has, how prescient she is, how sophisticatedly smart she is, how she manipulates everything from start to finish. But the one thing she couldn't manipulate was like her own son in the very end figured a way out of this. And the way out was just to kill her. And she didn't see that coming. Which is, I think, you know, when she, when he shoots Johnny first, is like you could just see so much go in that one brief glimpse of the of we get of her, yeah, of as she realizes just everything is falling apart. Yeah, yeah, it works really narratively that Johnny got shot first, the senator, because then she has that moment to react, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although arguably, like you didn't even need to shoot him; could have just shot mom, and it would have been fine, but. It makes it more scary that we get to see her react in that split second before she's shot. Right, especially since that scene is so tensely woven to begin with. Like, it's constant cuts from the, the convention speech, the president, the candidate giving his speech, where we see Johnny and um, Mrs. Eisen sort of fidgeting nervously as they're waiting for the moment to come. Yeah. The moment when, at the same time as we're seeing Marker race through the convention center to try to get to the to try section to get to where... Raymond to Raymond where we're also seeing Raymond put his gun together very deliberately like it's very well executed that helps really build that sense of suspense and then it all comes in that violent you know explosion at the end and of course Margot arrives a split second too late the shots have already been fired but they weren't the shots that he we didn't you know we didn't want to happen like the candidate's still alive the good guy but in that moment Raymond says no one would stop them and then he takes his own life which is just such a tragic ending because he, he he was just a pawn. He didn't mean for any of this to happen. And it's so unfair that his life got lost too. The same with Jocelyn, his newlywed wife. I mean, he just shot her in cold blood. He shot his boss in cold blood. I mean, it's really, really awful, which is, again, why I can't believe this movie was ever made. It's remarkable. It's really quite disturbing, not only because of its political overtones, but it's just a really well-executed, like, true thriller. Like, it's a very viscerally unsettling film yeah. like even now having seen it already knowing the, the you know the plot twists it still grabs hold of you and doesn't let go it like keeps you like on the edge of your seat as you're waiting to see what's going to happen next like that you know not to be banal but they don't make them like that anymore well they made it in 2004 they sure did <laughs> i haven't seen it because i have no interest in seeing so meryl streep meryl streep play mrs. plays mrs Iceland. yeah i mean meryl streep is a tour de force of an actor sure. herself and I mean, I love the people in it. Like, I love, you know, Denzel Washington. Denzel. And I love the guy who plays Liv Schreiber. Is that who it is? Uh-huh. Who plays, I, you know, Raymond. But I'm sorry. Like, 
And I mean, it's obviously resituated around the Iraq War, and so it has much more like presentist overtones. But I don't know. There's just something about the Cold War in particular that just is deeply rooted, I think, in our brains as being this time of, of, you know, dread and existential angst and all this stuff. Yeah, you were quite young when the wall came down. I mean, I still remember like watching all of that stuff on TV and like watching the Soviet Union become more open and... It, there's something about the nostalgia of what I've we've heard as Cold War that I think movies like this, you know, respond to. And it's also just true that Hollywood just doesn't work by this aesthetic anymore. Like, this is not these kinds of movies. I mean, they do somewhat, but like, it's hard to imagine a film like this being made by a mainstream studio at this moment. Well, that raised a question for me, Tej, and I understand this is a little bit outside of our scope because it's not specifically about Lansbury's function in the movie, but. You know, we at the beginning of the movie, we see Raymond being brainwashed and then we keep we see the guys having everyone in his army um, platoon platoon, having flashbacks to these weird moments that don't make sense. And and we eventually get to piece together that like they were brainwashed by a group of Chinese communists working with Russians and um while they were being brainwashed, they're being told that they're actually at a garden a, party. A garden party in New Jersey with these women in frilly hats and dresses and lace talking about hydrangeas. That's what they think is happening while in actuality they're at this weird convention being manipulated into killing each other. And um, you know, it's really remarkably done where it cuts back and forth between them and like seamlessly, like the dialogue is just seamlessly blending back and forth. And there's one point where it even pans around the whole room and we see both sets of actors. And so everyone must have had like very specific marks that they had to like hurry and get to as the camera's painting. It was just really well done. But I, I was kind of left thinking, and I guess I guess I don't have a lot of faith in contemporary viewers because I was kind of left thinking like, do people understand this today? I mean, I guess people still watch the movie for the first time in the 2020s, but I, I just am sort of skeptical that people can even understand what's going on. Right. I think that Hollywood tends to, well, more to the point, I think Hollywood tends to underestimate what the audience is capable of or willing to watch. And so I don't think that the studios would be willing to invest in this kind of really thoughtful movie, even, the, even though they would have done so like maybe even a decade or two decades ago, like Inception, for example, or not, yeah, or Memento. Um, you know, which is similarly like narratively complicated. That's true, I guess. See, we did have the mind game films of the 2010s, now that you say that, right? Like we had Memento and Inception and, I don't know, to some extent some Matrix was kind of one of those t- t- 2000s movies. But we don't have those anymore. Yeah, I just feel like they spoon feed us with cinematography and exposition a little bit more. And I don't know, you say that's a function of the industry and not necessarily that we, the audience, have gotten dumber, but I certainly was left wondering if this movie were made today and out put out in theaters and millions of people went to see it, would they be, like, confused as hell? Mm-hmm. I kind of think they would be. Probably. Oh, that was... Uh, and it, honestly, also part of the problem is that films are just shot in green screen, so there's, like, not a lot of actual exchange between actors and their spaces or with each other. And in this film, so much is reliant on space and on uh, in actors interacting with other actors that, you know, just the mere acts of filmmaking, the sort of practices of filmmaking have become something very different than they yeah. were in 1961 or 62. Yeah. Well, I'm fine with it not being remade again because 
I mean, if they did make, make it now, it'd be a drama on HBO. It'd be a mini series. It'd be a limited series. <laughs> it totally would be a limited series. Of course it would. But I'm fine with that because I don't want it to be remade again because I think you, you and I have said this before. It's frustrating when people like when you go to like Wikipedia or something and there's like a disambiguation page like, no, 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 no. When we're talking about the Manchurian candidate, this is the version we're talking about. Nobody's talking about any other version. Although I have to say, it just occurred to me, you know who I think would make a good Mrs. Island from today? Who? Julianne Moore. No. I think no. that she would make a very good Mrs. Island. No, and I'll no, tell no. You, and I'll tell you why. She's not wicked enough. Oh. Okay, why? Because she plays in this very good movie, which I – she is in Eddie Redmayne, where she – like, they're both part of the backlight. It's like this uh, plastics company. And they have like this quasi-incestuous relationship, and she's very controlling and manipulative. So if you if you want to watch Julianne Moore okay. being wicked, that's a good one to watch. Who do you think would make a good Mrs. Island? I mean, I think the logical actor of our day would be Meryl Streep, but... I know, but she's already done it. I know, but I'm just saying, like, I think she is the logical choice, but I don't... I mean, now Judy Dench is too old now, but she also would have been a good Mrs. Iceland. Maybe Helen Mirren? No. No, no, no. I'm telling you, Julianne Moore, Savage She can Grace. do... I mean, Helen Mirren can do evil, but, like, it's the wrong kind of evil. She's too... She's too slim. Mm. Which I'm not saying that Angela Lansbury is chunky. I'm just... There's something meaty about the role that yeah. Helen Mirren is too glamorous for. Savage Grace, by the way, is the movie with Julianne Moore in which she plays with Eddie Redmayne. Okay. Just saying. Well, I think that we can agree no one will ever top Angela Lansbury. That is true. She, Why didn't she get a nomination for this? It's weird. I guess billing probably, yeah, right? Because Janet Lee was the supporting actress. You know, what's even funnier is that Frank Sinatra actually wanted Lucille Ball to be Mrs. Island. Like, can you imagine a movie in which Lucille Ball was Mrs. Island? I love Lucille Ball, but I just don't think it would have been possible to have this kind of effect. No. Just no. I mean, it's also striking that, you know, Angela Lansbury is only three years older <laughs> than her co-star, even though she's supposed to be playing his mother, which I guess is yeah. not very flattering for her. But it's believe like somehow she ma- she sells it even so. I mean that was part of why she was so frustrated with Hollywood and wanted to leave for Broadway, um, where she got to be a leading lady and got to sing and dance all night long, eight shows a week, and treated like she was youthful, you know, because Hollywood always treated her old, even when she was like a teenager. She was playing like moms. It was ridiculous. But you know, she said in this movie that they didn't try to age her too much with makeup. I mean, she definitely has some bags under her eyes, but. They didn't, like, add fake wrinkles or anything. It's all in how she holds her head. Like, she gives herself a double chin by the way she sticks out her neck sometimes. And her just general sort of carriage and demeanor makes her feel old because she has gravitas, right? Um, And I think, again, that just speaks to, you know, how ridiculous that someone would get cast who's only three years older than the guy playing their son. But, of course, Angela Lansbury can sell us on that. Well, that seems like a good place to end. This has been a really rich, textured discussion of Angela Lansbury's performance in The Manchurian Candidate. And I, I mean, I could literally talk about this movie. I know. For hours. We didn't, like, I, I know. We barely gush- talked about the brainwashing and the political I mean, intrigue, you know, but I know. And the part where they say that your mother is very like the Queen of Diamonds, like another brilliant bit of dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Like that's why they choose the triggers at, at Queen of Diamonds, the thing that triggers the programming. They say something to the effect that, you know. <laughs> It's anyway, it's a great piece of dialogue as one would expect from a movie like this. Anyway, 
I could go on about it all day, <laughs> and I'm going to if I don't call it quits now. So, for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm TJ West. I'm Bridget Keys, And we will see you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>